Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This week, we were offering three conversations from episode 49, Finally, a Clinical Care Pathway for a Hidden Pandemic. In this conversation, last author Ken Cousy discusses the process through which leaders from gastroenterology, hepatology, endocrinology, diabetology, bariatric medicine, and primary care came together under the aegis of the American Gastroenterological Association to create the two consensus documents we covered in episode 41 and then today. Co-author Stephen Harrison discusses how the group viewed its practical goals and some of the key issues that emerged as the group created this pathway. This episode tells the story of what will be an important piece of fatty liver history. At the same time, it provides pivotal insights into the practical challenges in risk stratification, testing, diagnosis, and management of NAFL NAS patients that we face today. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Roger Green. We move on into the Naffold and Nash portion of our meeting, if we will. So um, I was talking to Ken last week, and and he mentioned that this paper was dropping. And um, took a look at the paper, said, wow, we'll talk about Louise's reaction in a minute. I don't know Stevens. And immediately said, you know, this is the most important thing going on anywhere in fatty liver this week. Can we be fortunate enough to get Ken to join us and come talk about it? And he was able to jiggle his schedule around. This is not the time we normally record. Louise might sound a little drowsier than usual. She never sounds drowsy. Tonight she might sound a little drowsy. But we were able to pull this together. So Ken and Stephen, what I'd like to do is just take a few minutes and run through what's in the paper and then talk about how you expect and hope it will be used and what you expect and hope will happen. I'd like to stay focused not just on what's in the paper, but on what the paper means and what we hope will be the beginning of. Start with what's in the paper. We'll come back to the other one in about 10 minutes. Ken Cousy. So here's where we are. So with Steve, we, we go back to Steve, uh, what, almost now 20 years uh, when we, when I was to San Antonio and we're both in the academic environment there. And I learned a lot from Steve. I said, an endocrinologist, we began getting asked to take care of these people. And since then, we did some studies together with Steve and think that there's been so much progress in the past two decades. But one of the things that still makes me lose some sleep is that there's this big number of people who now are being seen by their primary cares, by their endocrinologists that do a wonderful job in many, many aspects, but still are missing this silent epidemic of cirrhosis happening in people with obesity, people with type 2 diabetes. And it has been difficult to change the needle for, for many reasons. So with the initiative of the American Gastroenterological Association, Dr. Canwell invited me to reach out and put together a multidisciplinary effort, which Steve, as a key opinion leader in the hepatology field, joined. And we put together a meeting. COVID came in the midst, but we were able to do it virtually. These were opinion leaders from Europe, United States, Asia, Australia, and in different settings. And we presented where, what was the state of the art at the moment and what needed to be done for these multidisciplinary teams to work. There were primary care doctors, obesity management doctors, endocrinologists. There was the president of the ADA, American Diabetes Association, a representative of the Endocrine Society, the president of the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, key figures in, in other fields as well. And we said, well, these are the things that we need to be doing now. And this 
led to a call to action paper that was largely targeted for non-hepatologists. The liver doctors have been knowing about this for a long time, but there's been this miscommunication, if you're going to put it into the other fields that are seeing most of the people who are going to develop cirrhosis. So in this call to action that we published in July, we came up with the summary of it, well, where we are, what needs to be done. And this was published again in Gastroenterology, which is the official journal of the American Gastroenterological Association, Diabetes Care, which is the official journal of the ADA, and also in Obesity, that's the official journal of the Obesity Society, and in and in Metabolism. Now, what happened last week is that we wanted to get a practical guide and basically put out three figures on how to diagnose this and how to manage it. And why it's important is because I think with this, we will finally give a tool for primary care doctors to begin being aware of it and finding out, oh, wow, this is happening under my radar. And we hope that we provide simple tools to do this and build a foundation for even better algorithms as we move forward. That was quite elegantly stated and I think very, very cleanly described. So, Louise, I'm going to make you talk about when you first read the paper. Louise Campbell. I think it's a, a pivotal piece, personally. It is one of the major pieces where you've managed to get a cross-section of specialists at a high level, from endocrinology, from diabetology, from hepatology, from different countries around the world, from primary care. It's an amazing piece to get that many people at that level involved to target and to come up with something that's, for me, so succinct. It leaves little to question in the evidence that you put forward. It makes it achievable. And I'll cover that later on in the podcast, I'm sure, because my first reaction was it was very exciting. I read it late at night, which was probably not the best thing to do because my brain then wouldn't let me sleep for the next hour and a half (laughs) as I was trying to think about the implications for clinical practice, the implications for how do you get this implemented, not only in the US, but where the US tend to lead, a lot of countries will follow. And as people who listen to the podcast and Roger and Stephen knows I'm a resident in Australia. Australia do not even have Fibroscan currently on Medicare. So to be able to implement these guidelines has got to be a big shift. And Leon Adams is a world-class hepatologist and Australian. And it's great to see the involvement in this paper. So I just thought this was a fantastic piece. It's the first time. It's very black and white. It's very easy to follow. And for the exactly right reasons that you state, it's just clear, crystal. So it's a great piece and well done to everybody, but I wouldn't want to play poker with Minal or Stephen or yourself. You have to explain that comment. It's because we've had Manal and Stephen doing these podcasts regularly, and neither of those two dropped a hint in the last week or two that this was coming out. So, poker face. And they've both been on. Yep. Louise, you're, you're very kind in your summary. Ken is a natural at writing papers, you know, all the way back to, I guess, our first paper together and just kind of learning from him. The clarity and the simplicity with which this guidance piece is written was not done overnight. There was a lot of work that went into this and a lot of discussion. And I would say you're trying to meld a lot of different ideas 
and ways of doing things. And I think it's hats off to the group and, and to Ken and his involvement in being able to herd the cats and collectively reach agreement on what the algorithm should look like. And it's elegant in its simplicity. Thank you, Steve. You're so nice. So we published a first paper in 2006 in the New England. So we started an all-out publication there. And we just published another one about a couple of months ago. So we, we keep working together. But again, I mean, FIB4 has been out there for a while. And as Steve said, we wanted to start with something that everybody was comfortable with. There are many other non-commercial indexes. Steve has also reported one in his work. But this is one, some that is easily available, easily to build on electronic medical records, easy to access on any web browser, and it's free. So it's an average test, not a great test, but at least will identify people with cirrhosis or advanced liver disease. So that's a first goal. Definitely, we feel that this is just like, this is to build the muscle of primary care doctors, of let's say non-hepatologists. Uh, think about NASH. Think about this. I got my fellows at now when they present me a patient just a few minutes ago, tell me what the fib for is of their people with diabetes routinely. Same as when he asked if they had a, a urine albumin test for nephropathy. That's the kind of reflex that we're kind of trying to build. It reminded me as an endocrinologist 30 years ago, when we were teaching primary care doctors measure, you know, microalbumin in the urine. And they were saying, what for? You know, we are at that stage here. So it's with a very basic, very imperfect test, but we want to build the muscle. And that's what everybody, all the liver experts from where, from which I learned all this stuff, were very agreeable that a free test would be always certainly cost-effective, particularly because its negative predictive values is so good. And then the next consensus was, well, if there's indeterminate and high-risk group, which is the next test? And again, based on the experience that Steve and so many experts from the liver field felt, elastography would be the next test. But as for Luis, there are also other alternatives and biomarkers for places that you don't have a fiber scan. And again, we wanted to do this now because in the last guidelines by the Liver Society, ASLD, we had this debate about screening, for example, people with diabetes and obesity that are, you know, the highest risk. And because there was no evidence, it was kind of not recommended. But on the other hand, that leads to inaction. So what we hope is that this will begin building that body of evidence for robust recommendations in five years or so. Ken, I, I think the time horizon is really interesting and a couple of other things. They say a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step, but this feels more like you guys started with something between a marathon and an ultramarathon because A, of the energy to put it together and B, because yes, FIB4 is not a perfect test. None of these things are perfect. But what you've done is you've wrapped up a fairly neat package that no one's going to look at and say, God, that's awful. I mean, in fact, everyone's going to look at it and say, great, or at least very, very good. And it enables people to start taking action. So they don't have to then figure out how to move their left foot. They're now 50 miles down the road and there's a long way to go, but people are in motion. To be honest, and again, just one thing, I mean, I didn't do any, I just put all the energy to as a non-hepatologist to put the other pieces together because I kind of know friends outside the liver field. This is all really expertise that the liver doctors already know about. They're not learning here. This is aimed for getting the patients to them on time. And that's what it is, is a first exercise. Let's put this together. We made it simple so they can just paste it in their offices and think about it. Because the importance also is it that what I noticed, what I fought against 
against in the past several years is getting people who are non-hepatologists to believe that their NASH is a real entity. I still get endocrinologists that say, I've never seen somebody with cirrhosis in my clinic. My hope is that with this, they will begin seeing those patients in the clinic when they do the screening, the basic FIB4, and eventually an, an imaging followed by an imaging test. So I'm hoping for a wow factor by peers that begin using this and say, oh, really, there is NASH in, and with cirrhosis in my clinic. And that will get the buy-in for them later to get to the next stage when we have better biomarkers, when we have FDA-approved drugs. But this is slow. It's like a cholesterol campaign that took a decade to really take off. Let me just add to that. The claims data would suggest that most patients with NASH are presenting with decompensating disease when they come into the ER looking like the Michelin man with lots of ascites or having a variceal bleed or jaundice. And here we're trying to say, let's help the folks identify the at-risk patients that should be screened. And, and a lot of our discussion, believe it or not, really centered around step one, identifying patients at risk. I think we all very quickly came to the agreement that patients with type 2 diabetes should be screened based on lots of data to include the recent publication by Mason and then all the work that Ken's done in trying to rally around the risk factor of diabetes, not only for fatty liver, but for disease progression. And then we debated over the two or more metabolic risk factors and then steatosis on any imaging modality or elevated aminotransferases. Those two topics actually were bantered back and forth and debated. We wanted to be as inclusive as we could without being overbearing and, quite frankly, without having our primary care colleagues screen every single person that presented to clinic. So step one was actually quite a bit of debate going with step three here, which was the first NIT, which was FIB4 that was selected. Everybody kind of very quickly came to that agreement because there is an online calculator available. It does only look at four variables that are very routinely obtained, age, platelet count, AST, and ALT. And we know what we get with FIB4. We know it's identifying the F3 and F4 patient. We know it's best used for its negative predictive value. And we know the cutoffs to use. Then the next step was really trying to hone in on what the liver stiffness cutoffs would be. And Ed Now's paper and, and, and work done by others suggested at least that eight would give us a kind of a good number. If that was low or lower than eight and the FIB4 was lower than one three, that, that we could have some degree of confidence that we weren't going to be missing out on a patient that is going to be in harm's way and within the foreseeable future. And then it just kind of built off of that. But it really was this collective banter, this collective dialogue of, you know, as a hepatologist, I kind of think about, okay, this is, my visor is down, my blinders are on, and this is how I move forward with clinical patients and how I evaluate them. But it's not routinely done that way by primary care, endocrine, or others that see a much broader range of patients. And, and so it was nice to include that perspective and become really pragmatic about how we approach this. So my hope is that this process of identifying these patients and putting them through an algorithm of care will not only be looked at in a positive way, but people that do utilize it will find that it's very user-friendly, it's very helpful, and encourage others to do the same and reference this document. And as Ken said, cut and paste and put it on your workstations or preach this to your trainees or whatever. And now, back to Roger. 
We hope you have enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next Wednesday, October 13th, to discuss innovations in imaging the liver with Lars Johansson reprising the talk he gave at Paris Nash. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.